0: Hello, SFIA audio listeners. In this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out gonebulatv IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. In the past, we had entire civilizations devoted to agriculture. But in the future, we might have entire planets devoted to it. As the harvest season wraps up for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere for 2023, I thought it might be a good time to examine the concept of agri-worlds. Entire planets dedicated to growing food inside larger galactic empires, such as the 20 dedicated farming planets that supported the imperial capital of Trantor in Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, Or the far more dystopian agriworlds of the Warhammer 40,000 setting. So we will look at this concept, what farming might look like in such vast civilizations, and ask if there is a scientifically possible scenario where an entire planet might export food to another world, and if so, what kinds? As well as asking what role space farms might have in the future and what they might look like. These planets are ubiquitous in science fiction but often covered only in passing the literary equivalent of driving through the cornfields of Indiana, or the endless plains of wheat stretching from Oklahoma and Kansas through to Alberta and Saskatchewan. I've only seen one description longer than a few sentences, in Chris Raitt's novel Lords of Silence, one of my favorite authors from the Black Library, and it's decidedly darker than the words we'll discuss today, but I will read an abridged excerpt of it now, discussing the creation and tending of an agri board, specifically, but they're all basically the same, and it is the passage that inspired today's episode. After the discovery of a candidate planet, their first 50 years are spent in terraforming according to well-worn Martian procedures. All pre-existing life is scrubbed from the rocks. Weather, at least as generally understood, disappears, Rainfall becomes a matter of controlled timing, governed by satellites in low orbit and kept in line by fleets of dirigibles. The empty landscape is divided up into colossal production zones, each patrolled by crawlers and pestopters. Soon after this process completes, every agri ward looks exactly the same a flat, wind rummaged plain of high yield crops swaying towards the empty horizon. A person could walk for days and never see a distinctive feature not that anyone sane would choose to walk in such places. The industrial fertilizer dumps are so powerful that they turn the air orange and make it impossible to breathe unfiltered. A single growing season exhausts the soil completely, requiring continual delivery of more sprays of nitrates and phosphates. The entire world is given over to a remorseless monoculture, with orthogonal drainage channels burning with chem residue and topsoil continually degrading into flimsier and flimsier dust. But that doesn't matter, a planet can be driven like this for thousands of years before it eventually keels over and becomes a death world. At the end of every season, the great harvester leviathons are stoked up and dragged from their pens and let loose on the gray fields, smokestacks belching, and tracked undercarriages sinking deep. These massive creatures of high-sided metal and intricate pipework, the smallest of which are a hundred meters long, crawl across the blasted prairies, sucking up every last speck of pallid grain and piping it directly to antiseptic internal hoppers. Feed landers come down from high flight, dock with the still-trundling leviathons, and extract the raw material, from where it is taken into sea-sized processor vats, blasted with antibiotics, smashed, burned, crushed, then stamped and packaged. Once ready for transport, containers are dragged up into orbit aboard swell bellied landers, ready for transfer to void bound mass conveyors, which deliver the refined product to every starving hive ward and forge ward in their long circuits. There is a quaint tradition of marketing agri wards as quasi paradises, free of the squalor and overcrowding of a standard urban station, and full of bucolic ease. In reality, life on AgriWard is as unrelenting, back breaking, and monotonous as the vast majority of other imperial vocations. There are no trees laden with glossy fruit, only kilometer after kilometer of hissing corn. There are no gentle strolls under the warming sun, only punishing walk details in rad suits, leaning to the dust laden winds that howl around the equator with nothing to halt their rampage. Once new arrivals have made planetfall and found this out, it is too late. Crew transports arrive on Agriworlds full and leave empty. There is a saying among the indentured workers, you come for the soil, you end up part of it. And again, that was from Chris Raid's novel Lords of Silence, and listening to the unabridged audio of that passage from that book made me want to examine this topic and ask a few questions. First, why would you monocrop a whole planet? And I don't mean that as a rhetorical question. Second, could you plausibly transport food between planets, or even between stars in a no universe? And if so, what limitations or technologies are needed? And third, would it actually be profitable to burn a ward out that way? Because while it sounds loathsome, we can always imagine someone doing it if it truly were more efficient. So, for the first one, the answer is mostly no, but it depends. There's a reason why we do crop rotation, quite a lot of them. Up near me, the majority of farms grow soybean one year and corn the next. This replenishes the nitrogen and helps with pests and disease carrying over in the soil, and is fairly sustainable, though not without some caveats, the big one usually discussed these days being glyphosate, or Roundup, for keeping the weeds down. Corn and soybean are not the only things grown locally, of course. My area has a lot of apple orchards and vineyards. We do hay on my own farm, and you don't need to rotate that, though it is usually a mix of plants anyway, such as clover for nitrogen. Growing grass is trickier than it sounds like. Other areas do other rotations, but corn, soybean, and wheat were very common monocrops, and monocropping is where you just keep growing the same thing on the same land, year after year, till depletion occurs and in their case, on the grounds that they are crops that produce a lot of calories per acre, or hectare, and with very little manpower per calorie produced this way, and in a foodstuff that's very easy to transport and store for a long time. Intercropping is where you're growing two or more crops in the same field together, and overlaps with the concept of polyculture. Monoculture is having a single crop in a spot at a given time, so includes crop rotation where monocropping is always the same plant, in the same place, by itself, year after year. Rotating corn and soy is usually better than monocropping and a lot of four-tower river valleys could grow a crop over and over because the flood every year replenished nutrients. The upside of monocropping is that it lets you really specialize, you only need the equipment for one crop, only need to learn and master one crop, only need to be an expert in its diseases and pests, and so on. We've all been raised to think of monocropping as bad, but we do need to be mindful that it has big advantages, and that we don't tend to think of retooling a factory every season to produce a different product because it wouldn't tend to make sense. Almost every other industry does the equivalent of monocropping so we should be mindful that it does have some advantages. It has tons of disadvantages too, but the whole point of technology is to let you have your cake and eat it too, and odds are good a lot of monocropping problems can be addressed via technology. If you're wizards at pest and disease control, it's not a problem, and if you have easy access to the mineral form of whatever you're depleting, like phosphorus, or have huge fusion plants churning out ammonia fertilizer, then it's not a problem. If you are real wizards at genetics, then you might have put nitrogen-fixing genes into some plant that normally depletes nitrogen, and so on. We could imagine some masters of genetic engineering had designed a plant with all-black leaves that ate every bit of sun that came down on it, perhaps even near-infrared, and was perennial and ever bearing, and robotic drones came by and harvested the fruit or seed, and clipped it or deadheaded it as needed, so that some seasonless world was constantly under production. That's a pretty bleak-sounding place, though it probably would not be a uniform shade of total black, and I cannot see any reason why you would need to flatten the terrain. One exception might be an existing flat terrain. Some years back in our Ocean Worlds episode we defined a number of types of ocean-dominated planets, and one example we gave was what I called an Epipelagic Planet. The Epipelagic Zone on Earth is the first zone where sunlight can penetrate to, around a hundred meters or yards down, and you could have low-tectonic planets with faster rotations or just older planets where the mountains were all worn down. The mountains are not eternal and only active tectonics would keep a planet from flattening over time, then the water would sit on top of that. Indeed, I would imagine most Earth-like planets around orange dwarf stars, left to themselves, would eventually become entirely oceanic, perhaps just dotted by a few archipelagos, and then as the water slowly evaporated to space, as that star aged and heated, you would have a time where it was not very deep in most places, everything flattens out, and such a planet might be an awesome place for certain monocrops like rice or seaweed. That's also a good reminder that algae and seaweed and fish are things you can farm just as intensely as corn and wheat and chickens. We'll come back to that, but it's worth remembering that if we're working with existing plants and critters, then you are always going to have some polyculture, even if it's non obvious. You will have indigestible bits of food, to humans anyway, that you can feed pigs, cows, or chickens, and any number of insects aerating soil, who may or may not be needed for pollination too, though again, technology opens a lot of doors that would seem non-viable under normal agricultural practices. Let's contemplate production and population for a bit. First, we can assume a planet focused on agriculture is probably using about half its labor force for that, And is at least as productive per person as modern agriculture in the US is. As of 2020, a thousand acre wheat farm generally needed 8 workers and produced 44,000 bushels of wheat, which was low compared to the year before or after. And it takes about 12 bushels to provide the calories for a typical human adult as their sole source of calories. So each worker was producing enough food for a bit under 500 people and on 125 acres or four people fed per acre. Earth in total, every bit of land, sea, ice, and mountain is about 125 billion acres, so we could be talking 500 billion people being fed off of that. And before you go wait a minute about the inclusion of tundra and sea, keep in mind wheat is not a calorie-dense crop by acre. Soy does about the same, but corn does about twice as many calories per acre, and potatoes thrice as many though all those numbers vary a lot. Algae can do far better and use salt water to boot. And while it is worth noting you could monocrop an entire planet by using domes, and while it would seem like you would be planting these based on both available climate and demand, it is worth noting you could monocrop an entire planet by using domes and that often terraforming a planet is going to involve them anyway. We might imagine a planet-sized greenhouse, what we call a wardhouse, house, to ensure some barren planet was transmuted into some titan of industry to make all the gear for terraforming, then turned to agriculture, churning out enough food to feed a few trillion people a year, factories to farms rather than the other way around. And since it would be many big domes, not one single enormous one, that allows superior climate control, erosion prevention, water retention, and huge advantages at preventing the spread of pest and disease. Again, I wouldn't expect them to monocrop, but we're seeing how they might if they wanted to, especially as they could pump heat around that planet via vast cistern aqueducts too, to cool and hydrate deserts while warming tundra and desalinating water. This might be a preferred approach to terraforming too, doming and mass-producing food as your way of paying for the terraforming effort, and as your population grows, you transition from a farming planet to a regular one. And doming everything makes sense, especially since most wards would need a floor put on to keep the potentially poisonous surface layer of regolith separate from the soil you're producing there from it by a lot of treatment. In this way, the planet is moving not from agri ward to barren death ward, but rather to paradise planet. Indeed, the default order might be death ward to forge ward to agri to Paradise Planet, and perhaps to Ecumenopolis or Hive after all of that. But if we're assuming 500 people fed for each farmer, and 125 acres tended by each, then that implies that if every bit of land and sea was farm, and our planet earth size specifically, that you would have only a billion farmers on the whole thing. Now they have families and other needs, they will still want restaurants and schools and so on but even if we assume they were fully 10 to 1 in terms of other workers and kids to active farmers, I suspect future automation would do much better than that. For one thing, modern equipment already does, just most farmers run on stuff a bit more dated and often have other work they do too. I am in no way a full-time farmer, and my own tractor is fairly new, but a smaller and general-purpose one, rather than a large and specialized device, with many specialized attachments. So a billion people would probably be on the high side, with them feeding well over a trillion, and that would imply a population density of about 5 people a square mile or 2 a square kilometer, with many living in floating homesteads on the seas, tending algae or other crops. Or fish, again we wouldn't assume monocropping or no other exports. But this implies villages spread all over, Probably with populations in some single digit multiple of Dunbar's number, low hundreds to low thousands, which are probably kept the optimal size of minimal travel time to field walk, and not needing to replicate basic services too often, which is a major background influence on rural towns in the last century or two anyway. Is this place big enough for its own school or church or library or convenience store? If so, the land is probably more expensive to farm, so it becomes a trade off. This might be a case of mobile communities too, not just the ones engaging in sea farming either. As we discussed in mobile cities, the game changes a lot if you've got plentiful energy, like compact fusion reactors, because now you can have a town rolling around on the landscape on what might be a single massive harvester or tiller. That tilling machine might have a big fusion-powered Haber-Bosch reactor yanking air in and splitting out ammonia fertilizer made from the nitrogen and water in the air things like that might move on some giant rail system with huge crane arms on it too, and you don't care about soil erosion because it all ends up in some other field eventually, even if it's dredged up from the ocean floor occasionally instead. Or maybe you're in huge dirigibles instead of land crawlers so you don't disturb the field and everyone walks while suspended from cables above, supplying them power or water, not just holding them above the field, as individuals or on floating platforms or modules. Which actually sounds kind of cool, hanging in some harness while manipulating some huge fertilizer hose or suspended harvesting rig. Or your climate controlled domes might all be supplemented with daylight and heat and providing wireless power transmission to the crop tending drones. Such a dome, interwoven with microwave receivers, could also absorb energy coming in from orbital power satellites. And even without fusion, a lot of these planets might add in supplemental lighting via orbital mirror and dish arrays. So if you want to grow oranges in Alaska, that's no problem if you don't mind doing it inside an insulated dome and have some extra lighting provided by an orbital mirror or electric-powered LED lights. You could fine-tune either for photosynthetically optimized frequencies too. So on 107 Piscium b, a roughly Venus-sized planet, in orbit of that K1, orange dwarf star, 25 light years from Earth, they founded an agricultural colony. The world had a decent amount of water, mostly frozen, as it was further from its star than would be classically habitable. The star is old too, two billion years older than our own, and the world has no real moon helping with tectonics, so it wore down. The last volcanic eruption there was about the time life crawled out of all seas. It's a very flat place, and while some agri counter this with fruit trees or hardwoods for windbreaks, here they just dome everything over. 107 Piscium B has a very small axial tilt and little seasonal variation. The entire planet is domed over like bubble wrap with diamond domes a kilometer wide that got slowly added over the centuries, and even over its oceans, as the local air mix wasn't breathable by humans. From higher up, the planet looks honeycombed by those domes, packed in hexagonal fashion, and every 127 domes, there's a modest town instead of a farm with a tether to an orbital ring at which huge spaceships dock to carry cargo away. The night sky is dotted with orbital rings, the spaceship leviathons some kilometers long, and the huge mirrors and power satellites shining light and microwaves down. Some wards focus on mirrors that are filtered to send only red light down to enhance that photosynthetically valuable range of the spectrum, but this orange dwarf is already heavy in that range so they just absorb the infrared light to generate power they beam down and reflect the visible spectrum to the ward below, particularly the more polar latitudes. One of the cargo hollows, Grange 922, contains five billion cubic meters of storage area in its holds, and has over a thousand kilometers of heavy transport rail internally to allow rapid loading and unloading. Fully loaded, Grange 922 can carry as much as 4 trillion kilograms of wheat, or 13.6 quadrillion kilocalories, enough to feed 186 billion people for a year. Which begs the question of where this ship is going, and if you could plausibly transport foods between planets. And that's a tricky question because usually what folks mean is interstellar travel, transporting cargo between two star systems light years apart and that can only ever be viable if we have FTL of some sort. Now that's all fine in science fiction and there you might have behemoth ships like Grange 922 parking for loading and then traveling through hyperspace or warp to another star. Alternatively, they might have actual wormholes, like the Stargate-style portal, and just leave them open, with rail lines running food to a distant capital world while others ran back with cargoes full of fertilizer fresh from sewage plants. Or they might have sewage pipes dump it right into oceans of some planet, same as they might terraform a planet by opening a gateway between an ocean planet and a desert one and letting water drain between. It's hard to imagine transporting it slower than light, though, simply because even if you had giant cheap stasis options, which you kind of do with freezers being cheap to run ultra-cold in interstellar space, It should always take way more energy to move that food between star systems than it would take to grow it locally in some artificial space habitat and farm. Now if those turned out to be impossible beyond a certain scale then yes, this could still be done in some very limited cases. Earth is likely to be the most valuable bit of real estate in the galaxy for millions of years to come, and the one where an awful lot of the science, technology, and finance runs through. They may very well expect colonies to pay them for those valuable assets by shipping enormous cargos of raw materials or ultra-durable foodstuffs and be able to afford it if they were the center of an empire of a million star systems, still a tiny dot in the galaxy, and wore home to 1% of the wealth and the pipeline for science and technology. However, that's likely to be a rare and unstable exception, so by and large you could only move food around one star system, As we've discussed in other episodes, the real limit on population, as well as agricultural or factory production, is waste heat removal, and it's usually going to take less heat to move food or retail goods to Earth than to produce them locally, or whatever Star Empire capital is under discussion. Such being the case, the question is if we can get them off another planet cheaply enough, in terms of money and heat, to make that a profitable trade path, and the answer is yes. We discussed a lot of the options for that in interplanetary infrastructure a couple months back. Those might be examples like our hypothetical 107 Pishum B, or ones more like Najan from earlier, or maybe they're a world that's got giant towers running into space which are themselves huge arcologies or vast underground chambers of artificially lit crops and forest of mushrooms. Some lying fallow for years while roving tribes move in before being chased out when it's time to cycle up production again. We need not go so far as a full Dyson Swarm to imagine a future solar system in which Earth imports virtually all its food and retail. It's common to view such plants as leeches on their wider empires, but in practice, that's no more valid than saying a nation's capital is, albeit they have also often been viewed this way. But in an emerging K2 civilization, in a couple thousand years one may be just at what we call the K.16 region, about a thousandth of the sun's light being used to support civilization, that would already imply they had at least a million times our current numbers, and a national capital being just 1% of its nation's population would tend to be on the small side of normal, so an Earth of 100 trillion people, almost entirely focused on running government, finance, research, and museums would not need to export a single thing to more than cover its costs of importing everything, and would then presumably need something on an order of hundreds of Earth-like worlds to feed itself. Obviously, those hundred planets don't exist in our solar system, but we might easily build many times that number of space habitats. Hence, part of why I keep calling them agri-worlds, in spite of that being harder for me to pronounce than planet, because on this show we tend to use Ward to mean any independent body, be it a planet or a large moon, or a very large space station or asteroid. Amusingly, even my speech therapist had problems pronouncing agriward, so I wonder if the ward is likely to catch on. These presumably would focus on farming, and it might be a huge McKendry Cylinder filling ships like Grange 92 every week, or a billion smaller space farms filling more modest cargo vessels. Some might be on elliptical orbits of Earth, in every few months when the harvest season nears before looping out deeper into cislunar space. Others might be part of the Terran ring concept we discussed elsewhere, most recently in interplanetary infrastructure, where a billion kilometer long tether of habitats encircling the sun allows physical rail travel of people and cargo from a billion habitats right to Earth. I don't know what the optimal shape or gravity or size would be for one of these space farms. A lot would depend on culture and technology. As an example, we might assume space farms tend to be big enough to allow the comfortable support of Dunbar's number, which around 150 to 160 people is what we tend to think is on the small side of viable for a community. If that were the case, and one person's labor with robotic help could supply foodstuffs for a thousand others, including a wider diet like fruit and meat, then your minimum viable space farm supports feeding 150,000 people, And needs an internal land area, or its equivalent, of probably somewhere between a few miles wide to tens of kilometers in radius. And of course, many might have multiple layers and even orbit closer to a star where they get more sunlight. They might be big flat plates or long cylinders to provide gravity, with their axis aimed at their sun and a big mirror on the back to scatter light in. Farm habs on distant and cold worlds might use a big parabolic reflector behind them to capture and focus more sunlight on their crops, while a farm tower on Mercury might be a big mushroom shielding them from much of the sunlight spreading around a vertical foam, the mushroom shaft, a hundred levels tall, and with cargo picked up from the top in huge container pods scooped up by skyhooks. The subsurface vertical reefs of Europa might descend for kilometers, surrounding long chains of fusion-powered lights, with the non-digestible waste spilled out for local fish to eat, pursued by submarine drones who netted some of them for processing in the fishstick factories of Io. The options are limitless, and a hungry Earth of the year 4000 AD might need that, as it consumes five quintillion chicken nuggets each year, some from chickens, some from genetically modified Megaraptors, some printed from an algae base as synthetic meat, The dairies of that future ship in 10 quadrillion gallons of milk and 500 trillion pounds of cheese and butter every year, 50 trillion bushels of apples, and once a small town was destroyed when a ship docking at an orbital ring ruptured its cargo holds and 50 billion apples fell down upon the town below, 10 quadrillion tins of cat food come in per year, 500 trillion dog bones. An uncounted amount of hay for pet horses or other animals on Earth, and again is well below the heights of a true Kardashev-2 civilization, just a Kardashev-1 Earth with a wide panoply of space habitats on which most folks lived. How fast we can move things and how far they must travel at what speed, along with our technology for storage, helps control if those apples are coming in fresh or as canned applesauce. It controls if fresh bananas are affordable. Of those big ships bringing dehydrated food and staple crops known for their shelf life, in all of these scenarios, I am glad to say that such wards are likely to be more ecologically sound and much less bleak than our earlier example of the agri ward of Nejan. And while I suspect most space habitats would do a lot of their own agriculture, there is room for trade inside solar systems. And whether an agri ward is Kansas times a million or a floating space farm lazily orbiting the Earth Moon system. I think the future leaves the door open for farming and for a decent life for future farmers. So while I was researching and writing this episode on farming in space, I was struck by how often even articles and news on agriculture, space, and technology seem to come with the writer's ideological agenda stuck in there. I hate when it feels like the article I'm reading was written by someone with an agenda and bias that they are consciously pushing, even if it's one I share. It worries me when topics get entirely covered by one side or ignored by another. But there's a better way to read the news, and that's with Ground News. Ground News is a website and app designed to help you pull back the curtain on media bias. Every story comes with quick visual breakdowns of the ownership, factuality, and political bias of the sources reporting, all backed by ratings from three independent news monitoring organizations. Ground News is a fantastic tool for sifting through the daily misinformation and bias. They let you see who is covering what and which groups are ignoring a topic. You can see the bias, the typical factuality of the outlet, and who owns them, keeping your news feed transparent and accountable. Ground News is on a mission to empower readers and provides all the tools you need to be a critical thinker. I believe Ground News is so useful that I'm offering 30% off their Vantage subscription. You can only access this discount through my link, so go to ground.news slash or click the link in the video description and support an independent news platform working to make the media landscape more transparent. So that's it for November, but join us next week as we begin December with a discussion of how to select spaceship crews, before returning to our Alien Civilization series for Sci-Fi Sunday on December 10th with a look at Nihilistic Aliens. 2 weeks from now we'll talk about ways to warp and manipulate reality on December 14th. In 3 weeks we'll get discussing silicon-based life forms on the 21st, and then we'll finish the month and year with clearing space debris on the 28th and our final live stream Q&A on Sunday, December 31st. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also help support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, isaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service, Nebula, along with hours of bonus content at go.nebula.tv slash isaacArthur. As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.